from Maine Boats, Homes, and Harbors magazine, covering Maine's boats, harbors, arts, and architecture since 1987. Bringing the coast as close as the mailbox, on the web at mainboats.com. The time is 9.59, and you are tuned to WERU-FM, 89.9 Blue Hill, 102.9 Bangor, and streaming online at weru.org. Wabanaki Windows, the debut of a new show, is coming up next with new volunteer Donna Loring. Greetings and welcome to Wabanaki Windows, a monthly talk show featuring a variety of topics from, web, from the Wabanaki perspective. I am your host, Donna Loring. Before we begin our program, I would like to take a moment to recognize and remember Rhonda Fry, a Penobscot tribal member and host of Indigenous Voices, a show that she created and hosted here at WERU. Rhonda passed away this past summer, but her legacy and her groundbreaking radio work will live on with every show we do and every Indigenous voice we hear. Thank you, Rhonda, for your very extraordinary legacy. Today on Wabanaki Windows, we will discuss the Maine Indian History Law known as LD-291. It was signed into law by Governor Angus King on June 14, 2001, eight years ago. We will talk about what has happened with that law and how we view its progress and issues that have surfaced surrounding it. My guests here to discuss this topic are Maria Gerard, a director of the Penobscot Nation Cultural Center, James Francis, Penobscot Nation historian, and John Bear Mitchell, uh, co-director of the Wabanaki Center at the University of Maine. Uh, I'm going to ask them each to uh, introduce themselves so you recognize their voices when they talk. Uh, and uh, just a little brief uh, sentence or what they think of the, uh, the law uh, as it has passed. Just, just briefly, I'll start with you, James. Uh, thank you, Donna, and thank, thank you for having me on your debut show. Um, I think this law is extremely important uh, to the students of Maine to help them understand um, Native American people within the confines of this state. My name is John Bear Mitchell. I think the uh, law is extremely important in that it will educate children in grades K through graduation about the Wabanaki people in a way that's respectful and uh, forms some kind of understanding. Hi, Donna. Thanks for having me. Uh, my name's Maria Gerard, and uh, likewise, I agree with James and John on their views of uh, the Maine Indian history and culture law. Okay, it's been well, roughly eight years since this has been signed into law. Um, what you know, we've heard from various at least I've heard from various people that they wonder about the progress and how's the law doing or uh, are the schools uh, observing it, uh, you know, what's happening. Uh, so, you know, what, from, from any of you, what's your take on that? Well, I think that initially the law had an extreme amount of moment momentum with the Wabanaki Studies Commission. 
And as a student at the University of Maine, when this law was passed, I decided to do a, a research paper on the process of how do you implement this kind of law, this kind of groundbreaking law. And so I started attending the Studies Commission meetings and um, subsequently got a job from taking so many notes in these meetings. Um, so I think that it was a there was a lot of momentum uh, for those first four years. And then um, for the second four years, there have been small pockets of um, progress um, going on. For instance, I went to work for the Penobscot Nation, and we've uh, developed some curriculum. And there are some other uh, organizations that have been putting together some um, types of curriculum out there. But no kind of hub to, you know, move this forward. Yeah, there has been some legislative results that are positive in this because originally the law was put out as an unfunded mandate. It was a standalone law, and it was to uh, bring this content into the schools. The momentum we've seen in the last half of this cycle, in the last four years, has been really positive in that we actually got to get a lot of the aspects of the law into the new learning results, which is another law. But that's a law within the um, Department of Education. And, and John, you were on a, uh, a committee. Uh, you, you, I think you were, were you on the uh, study commission? I was on. first started? Yes, I was on the, I was tribally appointed along with uh, Rebecca Sockbeeson. Um, we were about the same age by our chief and uh, council to be tribal representatives on the commission. Right, and then you went on to another uh, right. committee. Right. We tried to really get this to be accountable into the schools. We wanted accountability because without accountability, we're basically going to have a scattered curriculum, if any at all. And the accountability piece that we saw was the main learning results. And uh, that was to be rewritten as per legislative law to take effect in January of 07. And so being a representative on the Maine Learning Results Revision Committee in 05-06, as at the same time this uh, law was, was being wrapped up as far as the committee goes, we were able to really put forth a lot of good language that came directly from the le learning results, uh, into the learning results, excuse me, from the uh, education committee that was formed to include the law. Okay, now let's just back up to the commission piece of it. The, the commission was formed um, to uh, develop resources and talk about what should be included in, in, uh, in curriculum, what uh, the teachers should be teaching, what students should be learning. Uh, was there any um, sort of a, a curriculum uh, person or, or, or teachers uh, from, from the state perspective on this commission? Yes, that's right. The, the way it was made up was that each tribe, the Mi'kmaq, Maliseet, Passamaquoddy, and the Penobscot tribe, would have two representatives tribally appointed into the commission. And then the state would appoint teachers from various grade levels into the commission as well. Also, a curriculum coordinator from a school district, a superintendent from a school district, was to be appointed as well as a Department of Education person, preferably the social studies person, because that was a natural place to start putting this into effect. Right. So there's a lot of professional uh, input 
from teachers and from the from the tribal communities. Exactly, on this and commission. exactly, and there was a there was a good representation right down the middle of tribal people and non-tribal people, tribal people that were f familiar with education, educational jargon, educational terminology, as well as uh, non-native teachers who really wanted to take what we could develop and you try to use it in their classrooms, you know, test pilot it and see what we could put together. Yeah. Now, was there a product from this commission? The, the product from the commission ended up being, first of all, a final report to the Department of Education uh, and the legislature. And then later on, the, we did develop a website where we had numerous amount of teachers through workshops that we had put on, James and Maria uh, were part of that as well, a part of that process. And from that, we created an online curriculum resource with, you know, tools for evaluating resources, whether they're human resources, written resources of film. So there was quite a bit of, of stuff put together, and uh, the information is held on the UMaine server. So it is available. Yeah. Uh, I think that's sort of a, a nice segue into... Um, teacher workshops. I know uh, James and uh, Maria and the Wabanaki Center has been involved in uh, these teacher workshops. So um, Maria, if you could just speak to the workshops a little bit here. Sure. Um, the Cultural and Historic Preservation Department was established around um, the year 2002, which was really um, quite timely with this law because uh, we realized quickly that there was a lack of resources and um, we set about to establish ways to put those resources in teachers' hands and uh, on top of creating a Penobscot curriculum to be used in the classrooms, we also uh, began doing a series of uh, workshops. And we call these workshops Teach the Teachers, and uh, we'll be having our third annual Teach the Teachers workshops this October um, on three separate dates. And, um, and during these workshops, we basically give some historical presentations. We also um, align those presentations with what can be taught from those lessons in the classroom. We um, have a curriculum, like I said, that we've worked on a highly collaborative process, and uh, we do an overview of the curriculum as well as the available resources. And um, we do um, have numerous resources available at the Cultural and Historic Preservation Department. And, um, yeah, that's So <laughs> you, uh, if, I know when you first started developing the, uh, the, the curriculum, um, I know James has a number of, uh, of uh, curriculum pieces that, that, uh, that he's developed. Could you tell us a little bit about those? Well, we, uh, our curriculum development process happened in two stages. Um, the first stage was to develop uh, 12 units of learning. And the way we kind of chose what those units of learning was, it was a couple of different ways. One, we had hired um, teachers to work with culturally appropriate or culturally knowledgeable people from the tribe. And some of the units were based around those cultural folks' knowledge. Um, Basket maker Pam Cunningham worked on a unit on basket making, for instance. Chris Ocalexis, who is a, a drummer and a singer who attends a lot of powwows, 
uh, did a performing arts unit. And so it was about tapping into the knowledge of the cultural experts that we had on our staff. Uh, another thing we wanted to do was kind of attend to what people think they know about uh, Maine Native Americans. Again, powwows. People think powwows when they think of Maine Native Americans. What we wanted to do was kind of teach them about what they may see in a powwow today. Talk about the economics that are going on because there's a lot of vendors, Native American vendors. But also talk about that the music and the dancing that they'll see at a modern-day powwow may be a blend of Indian groups from all over the country. It may be some Western dance. It may be some Southeastern music. And then once we educate them about what they'll see at a powwow today, we back it off and say, but this is traditional Penobscot or Wabanaki music. And so it's kind of twofold. So we're kind of attending to what they may think is Indian or or what they recognize as Indian. And so we educate them about what that is. And then we say, okay, and then this is, you know, true, pure Penobscot. Yeah. And you have uh, a number of, uh, of units that you've developed in that. Right? Yeah, we've um, developed 12 in the first, um, you know, things like a river unit, Penobscot's in the military, performing arts, Biographies, which is a unit that fourth graders all over the state already does. We just have integrated Maine Native Americans' uh, information into that. Um, there's a very long list. And in the second go-round, we developed another 24 units, which um, our first target was a kind of four through eight, the grade level. And on the second go-around, we wanted to include that K through three and also the secondary high school uh, levels. Yeah. And you have, you have videos. What's, what's in your, uh, I know you have a toolkit. What's in that toolkit? Oh, there's um, resources, um, you know, DVDs and videos are included in the kit. Resources that when, when teachers order this 12-unit uh, kit, they'll get the resources to implement it directly into the classroom. They won't have to go shopping for videos or books or other resources. And we've also developed resources for those, whether um, they're the, there's these very colorful panels that come with the military unit, 40 of them, that were developed in-house. And also uh, small video um, clips. Um, for instance, in the performing arts, Christoph Alexis is demonstrating some of the the drum beats that you'll see at a powwow, or some of the songs that you'll hear, um, and also music from um, some groups within the community that are still performing our ancient songs today uh, within that kit. Yeah, uh, John Beer, I know that uh, you teach some classes at the university. Could you tell us a bit about those? Yeah, one of the classes that I teach is called, uh, it's called <laughs> Introduction to Wabanaki Studies and Contemporary Issues. And that class basically is a gen ed class, so it counts towards a lot of different gen eds within the upper, um, well actually within the bachelor's degree program. So every semester, I teach that every spring, and that, that particular class tends to draw 50 to 60 students, which is a large wow. number of students for yeah. a gen ed class. So the class basically is a survey class in that we look at overall Wabanaki. We look at what is Wabanaki and where are the communities and what are the contemporary issues, what were the non-contemporary issues, and how do they play into who we are today. So it basically gives a lot of overview in that 
we um, touch on a little bit of everything. And, and I, I have the students do a lot of writing. Maria can attest to that. She took my class. Well, about, we'll have to ask her about that. <laughs> about seven or eight <laughs> years ago. And um, they do a lot of writing, a lot of reflecting. And that's a better way for me to assess what they're thinking about and what they're learning about. So that class, again, is uh, a distance ed class. It's on interactive television, which uh, may become a thing of the past. But right now, it's still, it's still maintained in that way. And I have about 40 students that sit in the classroom and usually 10 to 20 students all over the state. Yeah. Now, how long is the, are their papers? You've got like 40 students. So what do they write? Well, they have a very strict guideline. They only can write up to five pages, and I don't grade papers by weight. So if a paper is heavy because it's, it's double gonna, spaced, it's, no, it's double spa <laughs> space and a half at least. I, I yeah. like to write a lot of comments in between. It is a lot of reading. Uh, I do give exact s subject matters for them to write on, so I do get a lot of repetitive stuff. But I also ask for their opinions in there, and I ask for their insights into the topics because. I really learn a lot from what they see, and what they see is generally what's out in the media in the state of Maine, which sometimes can have ill effects on how we're represented. Yeah, well, the media, that's a whole, we could do another whole show just <laughs> on the media, that's for sure. Uh, I'm going to give you the, uh, the phone number for you to call in if you're interested in calling in. Uh, the phone number is uh, one 866 625-9378, and I'm Donna Loring, and I'm the host of Wabanaki Windows, um, and we're talking about the Maine Indian History Law that was uh, made in, into law eight years ago, and we're talking about the issues and the progress progression of that law. Um, so... John Beer, when we when you have your, I'm just curious because I taught a class last semester. Now, when when they pass in their papers, is there a way that you you basically have them discuss what they've written, or how do you address their, what they've written in their papers? What I want to do within what they do for homework is I want them to take a event that happened maybe three, four hundred years ago, two hundred years ago, and see how it ties into today's current events, in today's politics. I'm really looking at them not to just look at as the America's colorful past, but also the present and the future of this, this country, this state, their towns. We have a footprint in the state of Maine all over the place. You cannot pronounce the words on the signs most of the time. I hear that a lot. And I think a lot of that has to do with it, it being based on our language and being very descriptive of the places. So what I want them to do is to not only look at us as a past culture, a past people, a past government, I want them to look at us as a contemporary government as well, and I want them to make those connections. And the students who take the class, I look at those students as the ones that are actually going to be in the polit political arena in the state of Maine at some point. And so they're the ones that are going to be voting on bills about Native people, Native issues, Native businesses. So if they're educated in a way that is respectful, they will at least have a solid grounding for how they look at those issues. And will look at us 
as not somebody who's trying to be separatist, but someone who's trying to be a survival survivor in this in this government in this political arena. Because one of the things is that's taken away from us is if we lose our our language. One of the reasons why we would lose it is because our language has no direct impact on any in, environmental stuff in, in any economy. So those languages that are used in talking about economics are the ones that, that hold strength. In other words, we don't talk our language to the state of Maine because they don't understand that language, although it has more grounding in who we are. So I want those students knowing fully well that over the last 10 years of teaching this course that I've had well over a thousand students. I, I want them to, 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 to know what it is when a ballot issue comes up or to know what it is when a native issue comes up and to be able to make a connection and have that history. Mm -hmm. And Maria, since you were one of his students, <laughs> what, did you, what did you take away from that course uh, at the university level, um, did you learn anything, or did you think, hey, you know, I could have done that better? <laughs> no, I couldn't have done that better. <laughs> um, I think one of the things, um, well, what what I found most interesting was real or witnessing other people's epiphanies, so to speak, um, realizing that uh, there are so many misrepresentations and so many stereotypes still out there today and um, realizing that sometimes that class was like the first opportunity for those students to um, have a little dose of reality and they were really appreciative of that um, you know and just understanding how stereotypes might have occurred um, so I really enjoyed that part and um, when John talked about um, they sort of go through this this process of learning and understanding. I think that that's one of the things that I find so uh, hopeful uh, in the Maine Indian history and culture law is um, he talked about these are the future politicians of the state. Um, and the same with the kids that are being taught now correctly, um, Maine Indian history and culture, that they're going to be um, in a better position to understand who we are as people. Yeah, we... Uh and I just realized we've been, the, the name of the show is Wabanaki Windows, and we've been using Wabanaki uh, throughout our dialogue. Uh, John Bear, since you're the teacher, can you explain Wabanaki? Well, Wabanaki is actually a sentence. Waban meaning dawn, the time when the sun's just coming up. Aki denotes where people live. So it, it, the word means people who live in the dawn, and that's what we call ourselves. And it's a confederation comprised of four tribes, uh, that are in Maine and beyond, in into Canada, Atlantic Canada, and into Quebec. And there, the tribes are, if you remember it this way, two P's and two M's. So you have the Passamaquoddy and the Penobscot, the Micmacs and the Maliseets. Those four tribes comprise the Wabanaki Confederation. Together, we were one. We were one people at one time, and we still are in, in that respect. But we have separate communities. We have separate uh, governments. And... One of the things that's confusing is people say, well, there are four tribes in the state of Maine, but there are five villages. And they're a little confused by that. Well, there are still four tribes in the state of Maine, but there are five villages because the Passamaquoddy maintained two villages. One inland, which is called Indian Township, or Peter Dana Point, and that's Passamaquoddy. They have a, a government. 
and then the government is split between that one and the one down near um, Eastport called Pleasant Point, or we call Sibayik, and that, that basically is the other Passamaquoddy villages. So there are two Passamaquoddy villages. With their, with their separate systems of, of government, their separate chiefs and separate councils? Correct. They have their separate schools, separate governments. But they do get together for a joint tribal council meetings when they're making decisions based on tribal decisions and tribal lands because they do own land together. Right. And there is a, uh, a tribal representative from the Passamaquoddies who serves in the state legislature, and that representative is elected for four years, uh, first from uh, one of the other communities. They, they take uh, four-year uh, sessions, and then they step down, and the person from the other community runs for four years. That's so. correct. That's one of the great things. I mean, it's a very uh, good relationship for the communities in that they do switch off with their tribal representatives. Yeah. James, you've been quiet over there. Well, I think that uh, you know, one thing that um, we need to look at here is when this bill was passed, there was a lot of floundering um, by teachers because Maine... Indian education, not education for Maine Indians, but about Maine Indians, was so neglected in the state that the teachers who were teaching here didn't know how to teach it. And so from our standpoint at the Penobscot's um, Cultural and Historic Preservation Department was to ensure that the teachers had tools that they could gravitate to. And not only in terms of the kit that we talked about, but also with um, professional development. You know, uh, Maria talked about our third annual um, Teach the Teachers, um, but prior to that, we were holding workshops, um, summer institutes. Um, I teach a summer institute through the University of Southern Maine with, uh, in conjunction with the Abbey Museum, uh, week, week-long, you know, gearing teachers up for um, Maine uh, Native American studies. So this professional development piece has been going on for the eight years or um, that uh, the law has been in, in effect. And it's a very, very important piece. Um, we also contract with schools to have uh, in-service days for teachers for our department to come in and kind of acclimate them to whether it's the kit or on uh, how to choose um, appropriate resources, and how to integrate, <coughs> excuse me, this law into their curriculum. And that's an important piece. The, the Studies Commission was very adamant about not having a quote-unquote Indian class, that they wanted this integrated across the board, whether you're teaching, um, you know, math, science, English, and the obvious choice is social studies. And so we've been trying to find ways to uh, integrate that across the board, whether it's looking at Native American literature for an English class or looking at transcendentalism through Thoreau and talk about his guides, or even um, a science lesson in why did Native Americans suffer so devastatingly against diseases. I mean, there's a science lesson there. And so we've been trying to find ways to ensure that that happens. Um, but it's professional development is a really big key component to this law that the teachers know how to teach their students. What would you, uh, if you could control the the future of uh, teachers 
teaching uh, Wabanaki studies, is there something that you might uh, suggest that uh, they requ be required to have to be able to teach Wabanaki studies? Some sort of further training or? Well, I ideally, um, the University of Maine system um, and the, the College of Education there should put forth some sort of um, pre-service requ requirements for teachers. And uh, in, the, in the past, I've gone into um, classes at the Department of Ed to kind of orient the teachers to this law and to educate them about the law that, that even exists. Because I think at the, at the university level, um, the Department of Ed, I think that a course, at least one course, should be implemented to, to, for all future teachers that this law even exists. Mm -hmm. uh, we have a caller on the line. Uh, caller, if you could give us your first name and where you're from. Uh, this is Tanya from Belfast. Uh -huh. and what's and your I have two very unrelated questions. One is, um, do or did the four communities share a language and does it survive? I'm going to let James answer that question. Um, yes, um, the, we do share a, a common language which is considered Abenaki under the larger umbrella called Algonquin. And um, they're kind of dialects of each other. Uh, the communities can converse with each other even today. Um, all, the, all the languages are alive and uh, quite well, actually. Um, some, some communities have a stronger grasp of the language than others. Um, and some of the communities that were closer to um, the outside society, um, excuse my language, but um, the, the larger society, have um, their language has suffered more. The other question is, um, has there been any attempt at getting the curriculum into adult ed classes? Well, there's been a, been a this is John Bear, there's been a movement uh, to, get, to get the content into post-secondary institutions, but the law itself is only serving K to graduation, which we are familiar with, K to 12, but there has been no no effort really to get it into adult ed as far as how towns and schools run their adult ed programs. Not that I know of anyway. Do you know if it's being taught in adult education any place? I'm not familiar with it. Uh, no, nor am I. Thank you. Thank you for calling. You're welcome. So, um, Maria, I haven't picked on you lately. No, you haven't. <laughs> Do you have anything you'd like to uh, discuss? I, I know that you're concerned about a few issues and surrounding this, the law and, and some of the unexpected uh, consequences that has uh, come up from uh, the fact that people are teaching uh, Wabanaki uh, history and uh, some of them are, are pretending to be actually uh, Wabanaki or native when they are not. So, uh, Maria. Well, I think this has probably been a problem for a long time, but that this law sort of exposes this. 
um, because uh, there's a lot of opportunistic uh, people out there. And one thing about the law is that it doesn't really have any sort of uh, controls in place as to who's going to teach and what they're going to teach. That's exactly um, what our department is trying to do is uh, keep, uh, keep the curriculum authentic and um, culturally appropriate. And uh, yeah, most recently I've, I've had a chance to um, sit in on some talks. I actually attended uh, last month um, a couple doing a presentation on native spirituality. And so I decided to, uh, to, to go down and pay it a visit and see what it was that they were teaching. I call it their rendition of our native spirituality. And it was really disturbing. And what these folks uh, said uh, was that they were going around into classrooms and doing uh, presentations because what, what they told during their presentation was that nobody was doing that. Mm -hmm. Were they getting paid for, uh, re you know? Well, when I went to this workshop, it was uh, $20 per person. And um, uh, me and one of my girlfriends attended, and I did write a check for us because I, I did have every intention of getting the money back, actually. Um, and I expected that it probably would be a little disturbing because there's just some certain things that we don't discuss too much or share too openly, and our spirituality is one of them. And so that was a red flag that these non-Native people were um, doing a, a workshop on Native spirituality. And it was... It was worse than I had anticipated, uh, honestly. Uh, some of the things that they were putting out there just absolutely misrepresented the tribes and perpetuated the stereotypes, which is, you know, that those are the problems that this law was designed to eliminate. So as long as we allow those types of people to teach um, and not have any controls, then, um, unfortunately, you know, we're going to end up with this law that was one step forward and two steps back. Mm. And what uh, do you foresee any specific types of control that you would uh, put out there? What, how would you control this is actually what I'm getting at. I'd like to see a, um, a Wabanaki group. Um, I don't know if it would be considered a watch group or an ethics group or some, some sort of group that's made up of... Um, of all tribes in the state of Maine to oversee who's teaching and what's being taught. Uh, it's my understanding that the original intent of LD-291 was for the tribes to more or less remain in the driver's seat. For the commission to remain, yes. Yes. Um, and, so and that is absolutely correct. I wrote the law, so I know. Oh, yeah, that helps. <laughs> so... Um, from my understanding, the Wabanaki Studies Commission has been absolved. Is that correct? Well, the, the commission was only supposed to exist for two years by state law, but we got an extension and it, it kept going and going and going until, until we, we actually burnt out or died off, so to speak. We can't monitor that in, in, in that way. But just to piggyback what Maria's talking about is that there also are living history villages that are being created that are out there that are functioning as nonprofits that are actually passing themselves off as native organizations and they're not because there is no living history village in the state of Maine that's tribally sanctioned. So. Okay, I'm going to interrupt you right there. We have a, a caller on the line. 
Good morning. Good morning. And what's your name and where are you from? I really don't want to get about my name. I just wanted to make a comment and some questions. Hi, Donna. Hi, John. Hi, Maria. Hi. Hi. Um, <clears throat> I'm kind of sore here in my throat. Uh, I've been listening to you all. Uh, some, of your, some of the statements that you said were I agree and some I don't, and that's okay. I'm sure we respect each other as natives. I've been uh, telling people for years, Indians and non-Indians, what it's like to be Indian in white America. I don't have a problem that you're teaching the non-Indians about the truth about Indians in Maine. I don't have a problem with other Indians who are teaching in other states. Every state's different. I'm sure their curriculum is different. Um, when Maria was talking about going to this function or whatever, it sounds to me like Indian spirituality for sale. Um, we have to be very careful of these people that are going around claiming to be this and that, and they're a bunch of wannabes taking our culture, not just in the state of Maine Indians, but all Indians in this country who have been misrepresentation. Mis uh, what's the word? Misrepresentation. Yeah. yeah. And, and this is a big problem. I mean, I go to different powwows. I go to different, uh, you know, scenarios or like a public uh, talkings and, and and it's, you know, and people are up there saying, well, I'm a shaman, I'm this, I'm a medicine man. Well, you three know, and I know, as Indians in white America, is that traditional Indian people do not go around telling people that they're medicine men and women and talking about certain, uh, what Maria was talking about, you know, certain things are, are, are said, certain things are not said. It's the way of Indian life. I don't know about you three, but I know for me, is that being an Indian, I don't need a legislation or a community's consideration what it, how to be an Indian. You know, we Indians need to remain free. I, you, know, I, I have to, you know, I have to go back to what uh, uh, Lyndon Johnson said in 68, that we must affirm the first right, first Americans. We must affirm our self-determination. And I, I believe what, what the problem is is that the Indians I've talked to on, on these very, you know, real powerful debates politically is that I like to hear more mainstream issues like alcoholism, drug addiction, sovereignty. What is the Penobscot Nation doing to get real sovereignty? Some Indians want it, some Indians don't. Maybe, we, maybe you all can learn from other nations in different states how they maintain their own sovereignty and how they got that. I know Congress can limit tribal powers. I understand that. What I'm saying is another thing that bothers me when you, Donna, were in Augusta and you, you know, I, you know it bothered me that two Native Americans in Augusta legislation had no voting powers. I mean, you know, people seem to forget the first contact, the economic issues, the invasion, boarding school period, forced relocation, termination period. You know, some people might say to me, well, we don't want to hear that kind of stuff. That's the past. It's not the past. It still goes on today in this country. And I, I'd like to hear people say, you know, let's talk about the real main issues and get some people's nerves going because, uh, you know, I'm tired of hearing about the, you know, the black Holocaust, the white man Holocaust, this and that. And I bring up, what about the red man Holocaust? And the reaction is, what is the red man Holocaust? Uh, well, Marine Smith is a good friend of mine. I'm sure you three know her. Yes, yes we yeah. do. And there's four of us here. Okay, I'm sorry. <laughs> Including myself. Oh, okay, and your spirits. That's cool. Yeah. Um, but, you know, like me, Maureen and I, we've had many discussions on these issues, and, and she basically said it one day, you know, we Indians are still invisible, and I agree 1,000%. We're invisible not just in the state of Maine, but all over this country, including Canada and the world. And I, I really would like to hear you guys on, uh, on the airways here, Native Airways, um, talk about more mainstream issues, like the real issues like sovereignty, 
alcoholism, drug addiction, what are Indian people today doing today to better themselves? I mean, I don't have a problem that you're teaching. That's great. The non-Indians can learn something from us. Yes, you know, I absolutely agree with that. And, uh, this I'm sorry is, if I'm being a little No, 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 that's, that's okay. I mean, this is my first show. Oh, I didn't know that. <laughs> so, you're doing good, Nana. Well, you're thank doing you. Good. And uh, we will get to those issues, uh, I promise you. And uh, I, I don't want to be shut down on my first day. Yeah. So. Yeah. No, don't, no, no. I mean, what I'm insinuating here is, is that I, I like, you know, you hear all these other talk shows how they get really explosive in a civil way, you know. Yeah, they have, yeah. I, I'd like to, I'd like to hear other Indians call up uh, or you guys and say, listen, you know, we Indians are tired of being shuffled around like a bunch of, you know, pawns and assets. You know what I'm talking about? I do. Uh, you know, I'm tired of the multinational corporations destroying our culture. You know, Indians. You know, you we can all sit back and say, oh, nothing. But you know what? I don't give a, a hoot what other Indians or what the non-Indians think. I'm the one out there speaking, because uh, you three know who I am. Four. Uh, uh, and I've seen you guys. You know, I respect the fact that you speak up. That's good. But you know what? We Indians got to continue to maintain our own sovereignty, and i like to hear more mainstream issues on that. Thank All you. All right. Thank, Thank you, you, and uh, keep tuning in. Yeah. <laughs> well, I, I think it's in, important, and... Um, my name is James. I'm, I'm at the table also. Um, it's, it's important that, um, you know, what we're doing today is kind of setting that, that roadmap because uh, for future shows in that um, there's nothing more important than education. And that to highlight that this law is out there and that, that this show is going to be on, on the radio is, is an important piece to that education. Absolutely. Maria? Um, yes, I'd just like to comment our last caller, um, I, and I appreciate everything that he said, and I, I totally understand where he's coming from. In my experience, I find that um, people need to take things slow. Uh, this is really somewhat of a shock to a lot of people who are relearning everything that they've learned throughout school uh, to find out that things really aren't quite the way it was presented to them. Right, yeah, and let me just interject here. I mean, the, it's only been a law for almost eight years now, so mm -hmm. <laughs> we are slow. We, so only, we only have, what, about 450 years to correct? Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, so just, you know, taking it slowly and one step at a time and for people to realize that, you know, everything that they thought they knew may not, you know, may may be a lie or may have been misrepresented. I mean, that's hard for them to have to handle. So in my experience, you have to take it slow and you have to move slowly and, and make sure that they understand. And then they're willing to open up to these bigger, broader issues. I mean, the issue of sovereignty is, huge. my gosh, we could do a whole entire college-level semester course on sovereignty. Yeah. So, but, uh, but I guarantee we will be talking about that, that issue. If I can inject, too. Yeah. Um, to piggyback what Maria was saying, and um, that is resource. You cannot teach about anybody unless you have the proper resources. So those resources generally are not considered important if they're not written. They're not considered genuine research if it's an oral tradition. So it has to be written. So over time, what I hope to do in my classes and what James probably does in his classes and teaching the workshops is basically to go about creating a atmosphere of people who can create resources. 
Now, the ultimate goal would be to have native people, specifically Wabanaki people, create Wabanaki material. But right now, we just don't have the scholarship to be able to do that, but we are developing the scholarship now. And the scholarship is, is in research, is becoming more and more important and strengthening. But until then, we, we should take the resources that we have that were written by non-native people as something that we can, we can use. Now, that's not to say resources aren't available, Donna, because your book is available. That's right. And <laughs> I used it in my class. And well, thank it, you. It really sparked a lot of discussions and it w brought up a lot of issues. So those are the things that we ultimately hope to get to, but it's not going to be in my lifetime, but it will happen at one point. Well, I'm hoping that it will be in our lifetime, at least uh, maybe one little giant step forward I'd like to see. And I think the, the, the seeds are planted, and uh, it's up to us to, uh, to sort of nurture those and, and uh, move that forward. And this is what this show is, uh, is trying to do. And, uh, and, and you all have uh, basically uh, are, uh, have and are doing a lot uh, to, to nurture those seeds. Um, now, is there any more thought on what, on this, uh, what this gentleman had called up about? Uh, well, I think Maria's right in, in, that, in that way, is that we need to start with the baby steps because that's where we are right now. And the caller has some very valid points that he made, and there are things that we can definitely address in a post-secondary institution immediately, almost like a, you know, an immunization we, we, to inoculate these learners uh, you know, against what they've learned, you know, to get rid of those diseases of, of knowledge. But what the bill targets is Careful. K through, <laughs> yeah, <laughs> K through 12. And in K through 12, we can't necessarily get into that in any depth as K-8 teachers. I was a K-8 teacher, and I taught Native Studies at the Indian Island School in the village where I grew up, Penobscot Nation, for a number of years, and was hard-pressed to teach it in there. I can't imagine what teachers are going through outside of the reservation schools or the nation schools because it's a very difficult process. But we're trying to make it less scary just you know develop 10 lesson plans each year for five years and keep updating them it, it basically is is that easy so w in the end yeah I, we do need to get to these issues but it's a sensitive issue and how we put them forth in general society to k-12 students so we got to try to really be careful about how we present our uh, troubles in turmoil we don't want everybody to think we're just a nation in turmoil we want them to understand the positive aspects as well, which far outweighs the social, contemporary social impacts that are, are in the communities. We can do that in a post-secondary. We can't do that in the K-12. Yeah, you know, this kind of reminds me, I, uh, I was asked by the New England Journal of Higher Education to write an article for their summer uh, magazine, and I wrote uh, ed Indian Education, uh, or, or Education, uh, Dark Ages, and A New Hope, and the point of that article was that colleges should, should use uh, Indian history in their orientations and in their, in their core for, for the freshmen that come in uh, all across, not just Maine, but all across the country that uh, Indian history should be studied because we are the first nations of this country. 
one of the things that we do at uh, Penobscot, when we started to look at some of those high school units that we wanted to create was to look at one civil rights and kind of do a unit around what Native American civil rights looks like, um, but also sovereignty and how that really um, tough issue, how we can introduce high school students to that concept so that when they get to John Bear's class at college, there isn't so many aha moments that it doesn't hit them like a, like a ton of bricks, that they have some sort of background that, um, you know, this concept of sovereignty. And we also teach them about all the federal acts and talk about how the federal government had dealt with what they called their Indian problem and also how the tribes in the state of Maine were uh, affected by some of these federal acts, in some cases, in other cases not, um, and also Maine's unique relationship with the tribes within their borders because we're unlike any other state in this union in, our, in the relationship with the tribes. And um, that hasn't been seen as a very positive thing in, in our history. So I think we do, we are trying to attend to some of those tougher issues, but only in the high school level. Yeah. And uh, I definitely think, and I, I know you all agree, that uh, it should also be on the, in the post-secondary and, and college levels as well. Right. I think our first step to that, uh, being in the last, spending the last eight-ish years in a post-secondary institution, is that if each state had a, a history of their state, course that all freshmen were required to take or first year students as we call them now to be politically correct because we you know freshmen is are not just 19 year olds right they're actually 60 year olds as well <laughs> not only men either yes there's women true. in there john that's true <laughs> did i say men yeah oh okay i meant <laughs> womb men and and men okay. and so when we look at all the people that take take uh start out in college because of the economy now we have older students, men and women, coming into the university. So we tend to call them first-year students instead of freshmen because I don't think any 40, 50, 60-year-old wants to be called a freshman. Well, maybe they do. I could have different reasons for that. But if we had a main history course within the University of Maine system or within the community college system or private colleges like Bowdoin, Bates, or Colby or you know, University of New England had some kind of main history course where a, a good portion of what flows through that course is native history, then we would be starting to get it into uh, the minds of academia, I think, rather than it being just a course. Let it be a theme. Right. I agree. Any comments from anybody else on that? Okay. Um, how, do you, how do you think that the law... And I've, I've been asked this question many times, uh, is being implemented. Do you think that, uh, or how much more work in Maine schools uh, needs to be done? A lot, a little? Uh, have well, we done a lot? I, 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 think, I think there's a lot to be done. However, I, that's not to discard the progress that has been made in the last eight years because being at most of the professional development that has taken place under under the title of LD 291 
in the begin in the beginning the first few it seemed like we were preaching to the choir that that we saw the same faces over and over again those same core teachers who were already doing it and you know wanted to to learn a little more and to uh, do it the right way but as years have gone on, we start to see districts requiring their teachers to attend these trainings. Uh, a lot of times when we have these professional development, it was um, it's districts sending a whole group of teachers to come in. And so I think that's extremely positive. And I don't think it's, we've gone far enough though. I think that, um, you know, all schools need to somehow attend to this and we we don't see that across the board so but you know i think that the progress has been great so far it's just there's still a lot further to go john beer i i i want i want to look at my graduation when i graduated from high school a few well maybe a a little while ago and uh (laughs) all right some of those kids probably Uh are you know are are pretty old now, but uh, basically, when you get out of high school in Maine today, do you know what the Wabanaki is? Do you know what Passamaquoddy, Penobscot, Micmac, or Maliseet mean? Do you know the location of the tribes? Generally, no. But when you leave there, you do hear about Geronimo, Sitting Bull, Chief Joseph. But you don't hear much about Samoset, or Bashbees, or the chiefs that were as important to us as the chiefs I just mentioned are important to their people. I want high school students to come out at least to be able to pronounce those words and to understand the basics of what they are. That's my goal. Maria? I think that the progress has been slow, but as James said, um, you know, it's been slow and steady and it's been good. I think teachers are doing the best that they can uh, given the... um, the resources and the knowledge that they have, and of course our department is looking to further their their knowledge and their resources. And uh, I think we just need to be patient. Uh, it's only been implemented into the main learning results uh, in 2007, so for two years. And uh, so hopefully where it's incorporated into the learning results, we'll see um, more progress. Um, I think that uh, we want to stay focused, though, on quality education rather than quantity education. I know there's been some desire to, you know, podcast or uh, broadcast um, our education, our uh, Indian education knowledge um, to to reach a wider audience quickly, but I don't think that that's necessarily um, the way to go. Okay. uh, We have a caller on the line. Uh, caller, if you could tell us your name and where you're from. Hi, this is Nick from Waldboro. Hi, Nick. Uh, unlike your previous caller, I'll give my name. I thought that was... Uh, Thank you. He shouldn't be hiding. <laughs> I agree. Uh, um, in, I, I tuned in late, and so is there some legislation no. that, that, that's going to make uh, educate, you know, toward education of the old ways? In, in general schools, that something was said, and somehow I got the idea that there's some legislation pending here or something. No, Is no, it's a, it's, a, uh, it's a law in Maine that has, was passed in uh, 2001 yeah. uh, that requires Maine uh, Indian history to be taught in all public schools. So okay, it's so been, is that being implemented? Well, that's what we're talking about. We're talking about the implementation of the law 
and uh, and the some of the issues, side issues, and what we think of uh, how that's working. Okay, then then um, I wasn't able to judge. But I've been listening for about fifteen twenty minutes, maybe. And and so is this law working? Uh, yes, we believe that it is. Uh, we also believe that's what the last you probably on the line waiting, but uh, we all talked about uh, what we thought how it was working and uh, what really we want to see in the future come from that law. Okay, well that's good then. Okay, uh, and so now also, um, so do you folks have a, um, a regular program now? Well, that's this going to come on ERU every month or whatever. Yes, uh, this is the first the first program. Okay. Uh, and uh, for all you listeners out there, <laughs> uh, we'll be on every uh, third Tuesday of the month. Okay. And the show is called Webinacky Windows. Mm-hmm. And uh, I'm your host. I'm Donna Loring. Yep. And, and you're uh, from I'm a Indian Pen- Island. Yes, I'm a Penobscot uh, tribal member. And have you given any thought to taking those grounds by the school and turning them back into the community garden? Grounds by the school. Yeah, uh, down by the school. All that used to be... Oh, yes, some, yes, yes. Yeah, uh, well, uh, that's a tribal council. At least that's what Dana Mitchell told me. Yeah, well, <laughs> well that's a tribal <laughs> council decision, something the tribe's going to have to determine. Yeah. Uh, but uh, our time's running short, okay. and I thank you for calling. All right, thank you. Yeah. Um, I'm not sure how much longer we have. Okay, um, but there are some events coming up that I want to make uh, our listeners aware of. Um, tomorrow, I'm sorry, September 18th, uh, there's going to be a book event on Indian Island uh, with Harold, uh, uh, what's Harold's last name? Harold Prince. Harold Prince, yeah. Harold Prince. I know he's going to hear this. <laughs> <laughs> Harold Prince and, and Bunny McBride uh, with their new book that's coming out. Uh, October 1st, there's going to be a UNE event uh, that's going to kick off a lecture series uh, on, uh, on Native people. And then October's 5th, 13th, and 29th, there'll be a teacher's workshop uh, on Indian Island. And you can get more information by calling... Uh, 207-817-7477. Okay. Could you just repeat that number again? 207-817-7477. Okay. And uh, again, this is uh, Webinacky Windows, uh, W-E-R-U. And uh, I would like to take one minute here. Uh, As many of you know, Robert Woodbury former chancellor of the University of Maine, passed away last Saturday. Bob was a friend and a mentor to me. We both served on the board of directors of the Maine Community Foundation. He was the consummate educator. He was warm, caring, and he loved to laugh. With Bob's passing, the world is a little darker, a little colder, and a little sadder. But the night sky is brighter, for there's one more bright shining star added to it. Thank you for listening. To Webinacky Windows, I'm your host, Donna Loring, and the show is produced by Amy Brown, and talk to you next month.